Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Uh, welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I am a host on the channel, and today I am exceedingly pleased and indeed honored to be speaking to Sir John Elliott, Emeritus Regis Professor of History at Oxford, famed specialist in early modern Spanish and European history. We are today speaking about his newest book, Scots and Catalans, Union and Disunion. Uh, welcome, Sir John. Thank you very much. Very nice to talk to you. Uh, Sir John, what is uh, the primary thesis of your book? Well, uh, I was concerned by the simultaneity, almost, of the Scottish and the Catalan referendums. Uh, in 2014 and 2017 on independence. And this struck me as a very interesting moment, uh, historically. And I'd worked in the past on the history of Catalonia in the 16th and 17th centuries. And so I had a background in Catalan history, the history of the uh, eastern part of the Iberian Peninsula. And I'd worked in particular on the revolt of the Catalans uh, in 1640 against the government in Madrid. And I began to see a repetition uh, over the course of Catalan history since 1640 uh, in uh, strong nationalist expressions of nationalism. And uh, in the early part of this century, the first years of this century, it was clear that Catalan nationalism was becoming an extremely strong political force. And just at the same time, uh, the Scottish National Party was rising to prominence in Scotland. So we had uh, two simultaneous, strongly nationalist movements uh, in the first years of this century and up to today. Uh, Movements that were demanding uh, independence and separation uh, from uh, the two powerful uh, entities to which they had traditionally belonged or belonged for a long time, uh, Spain on the one hand and Great Britain on the other. And I thought it would be fascinating if I could simply follow the trajectory of those two histories, two uh, nations, if you like, without states, without states of their own, from the Middle Ages, from the 14th and 15th centuries, uh, right up to 2017, uh, when the uh, Catalans, uh, after uh, launching an unconstitutional referendum, uh, the Catalan leaders uh, went into exile or were taken into custody, and at present were at a moment of considerable crisis. But this is not essentially a, a political book. The whole aim is to see if we can find both the similarities and the differences uh, between uh, the history of these two nationalisms. And I've always been interested in comparative history, 
I was very anxious to see if I could do a sustained comparison, uh, identifying similarities and differences, and then going on uh, to attempt to explain them. Now, in comparing the two cases, isn't there two discrepancies or differentials between the two uh, nationalist movements. Uh, one is that uh, while Scotland, both in terms of governance as well as wealth, has always been England's, for lack of a better expression, poor cousin, uh, that's never been really the case, I believe, between, say, Catalonia and Castile. And the, I suppose the other difference is that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Catalan nationalism appears very similar in terms of its um, growth or, or, well, growth in the 19th century and early 20th century, uh, more akin to sort of a traditional nationalism that one finds in, say, Central or Eastern Europe. I'm thinking particularly of the Czech nationalist movement, uh, which has, um, in some senses, a great deal of resemblance to the Catalan example, um, both uh, movements being, uh, I'm sorry, both historical autonomies being wiped out in a very specific time in the early modern period, 1620 in case of uh, Bohemia slash Czech, um, 1714 in case of uh, Catalonia. And in the case of Scotland, you don't have that um, case of the autonomy, uh, legal autonomy as well as um, legal autonomy at the very least being wiped out uh, at such a crucial specific date as well as you don't have, of course, in the case of Scotland, a growing nationalist movement in the 19th century. Yes, those are very interesting points, both of them. Uh, as regards the uh, economic question you pose, uh, this is true and it's absolutely fundamental that Scotland at the most, I think, produces about uh, 9% of the British GDP, whereas Catalonia uh, represents 20% or so of the Spanish GDP. And that there has always been this economic imbalance between Catalonia, which was a pioneering industrial society in the 18th and 19th centuries and became rich and prosperous, and uh, other parts of Spain, apart from the Basque country, which uh, were relatively underdeveloped, uh, certainly in relation to Catalonia and in part uh, to the Basque provinces. So that the Catalans, in a sense, have been uh, the pioneers of economic growth uh, over the uh, 18th, later 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. And this has given them a sense of their own importance. It's also, I think, created resentment in other parts of Spain because the Catalans, in a sense, have, have wanted to recast and remake Spain uh, in their own image. And they regard Catalanization as the equivalent of modernization. So you can see the impetus there behind them and also the resentments it tends to create and has created in other parts of the Spanish peninsula. Uh, Scotland, on the other hand, as you say, has been in some respects uh, a poor cousin uh, of a more powerful, uh, much more powerful England. But uh, the great difference here, I think, has been that the Scots, who were desperate, uh, were in a desperate situation at the end of the 17th century, uh, financial and economic situation, they'd launched a disastrous uh, expedition to uh, Panama to create a Scottish colony, and that had virtually bankrupted the country. 
So there was a, a, a sense of defeatism at that moment, and the only solution for the Scots uh, seemed to be somehow to get into the growing British or English uh, overseas empire and join in the colonizing and the imperial process. And that was what happened in 1707. The English also, and we can talk about this later if you want, uh, were interested uh, in keeping the Scots on board. In fact, they were desperate to keep the Scots on board. So in a sense, there was a, a settlement between the independent kingdom of Scotland, as it then was, and uh, the independent kingdom of England, both ironically ruled by the same ruler, uh, Queen Anne, there was a treaty, effectively, in 1707 between them, in which, by which, in return for the surrender of the Scottish Parliament and the entry of Scottish members of Parliament into the English Parliament, which now became a British Parliament, uh, on the one side, and the Scots made that surrender in return for permission to join in England's overseas trade and, and the, in the English colonizing process. And the Scots were in, to play an enormously important part in the development of the British Empire in the 18th and 19th centuries. They were great uh, empire builders, the Scots, and this integrated them into uh, the new society, Great Britain, uh, created by the 1707 uh, Anglo-Scottish settlement. How important uh, was the contractual nature of political allegiance in both cases to the emerging or nascent sense of national identity in the early modern period, insofar as it could be said to exist? Uh, it was fundamental, I think, in both cases. The Scots uh, had been, of course, an independent kingdom uh, right through the early Middle Ages, and when they defeated the English uh, in the wars of the uh, late uh, uh, of the 1290s and the early uh, 13, 14th century, uh, they reaffirmed their identity and saw it with Robert Bruce as their monarch as a uh, an identity based on a contractual relationship. Uh, an agreement, a tacit agreement between uh, the king and his people. And that remained a fundamental part of uh, the Scottish outlook, this sense of government by agreement, which of course had also developed in England uh, at the same time with the development of the House of Commons, Parliament and so on. So that both uh, English and Scottish societies uh, had their strong sense of identity based on the superiority in the long run of, uh, the, mon of the subject uh, to the monarch. And this made them sovereign states uh, based on a sense of uh, a contractual relationship. Well, now the Catalans in the Middle Ages uh, had also developed a very strong uh, contractual system with strong defenses against royal arbitrary power. And that contractual relationship continued after Catalonia with other parts of the crown of Aragon on the eastern side of the peninsula, the kingdom of Aragon, the kingdom of Valencia, uh, maintained following the marriage in 1469 of Isabel of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon, following that marriage and by the terms of the marriage uh, agreement, uh, the crown of Aragon, which included Catalonia, as I say, 
continued with its laws, its institutions, its protective mechanisms against arbitrary power. And that system continued until, uh, as you mentioned, uh, 1714, when the Catalans effectively backed the wrong side in the Spanish Civil War uh, over the succession uh, to the last Habsburg ruler, uh, Carlos II, who died in 1700. And the Catalans, or the Catalan establishment, backed the wrong side. And uh, the armies of the new Bourbon monarch, Philip V, closed in on Barcelona uh, after a lengthy and heroic siege. The city had to surrender. And following that surrender in 1714, the administration of Madrid, the royal government of Philip V, uh, abolished almost all uh, Catalan laws, liberties and institutions, except parts of the civil law, and uh, imposed what was called the Nueva Planta, the new plan of government, which was an authoritarian form of government uh, run from Madrid, top-down uh, government uh, run from Madrid. And it was under this system uh, that the Catalans entered uh, the 18th uh, century. And in a sense, therefore, uh, although uh, the liberal movements in the 19th century restored parliamentary institutions in Spain following the 1812, new 1812 constitution of Cadiz, the parliamentary system didn't function particularly well in 19th century Spain. So that the sense of uh, uh, a contractual relationship of uh, ruler and people uh, was, in a sense, undermined uh, by the actual events uh, of the 19th and then even more uh, of the 20th century. You were asking, too, about the nature of uh, Catalan nationalism. And I think you're right in the sense that uh, right across Europe, in the age of the American and French revolutions of the late and 18th, early 19th centuries, and the coming of the Romantic movement, there was a movement right across Europe, including Britain, uh, a movement of uh, enormous interest uh, in the past of these societies and in the nature of the societies concerned. And the Scots, uh, like the, Hungar the Magyars, uh, the Czechs, as you say, and other members of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, which was, of course, one of these great composite monarchies uh, of the period. Uh, all those, in all of those societies, uh, poets, playwrights, uh, historians, philosophers, uh, began to try and look into the past of their societies with the sense of their nations as being something organic, uh, going back uh, to uh, the beginnings of these people living together, developing their own customs, their own way of uh, thinking, speaking, their own relationships with the outside world, and thus forming uh, a strong sense of identity. And that happens in Scotland, for instance, with the novels of Sir Walter Scott. It, it happens right across the continent. It happens very strongly in Catalonia, precisely because things were not going well in a lot of much of the 19th century. And the Catalans, in particular, uh, began to uh, recover their language. 
Uh, Catalan had always been spoken in Catalonia. It's a, it's a branch, uh, it's a Romance language. Uh, similarities to Castile, Castilian, but also to Provençal French. And they gradually, although that language was widely spoken in Catalonia, it was rather ignored and dismissed by the upper classes of uh, Catalonia, uh, who were more concerned to follow the example of Castile and Madrid and began using Castilian uh, on a large scale. But by the middle of the 19th century, there was a great movement, sort of second generation of romantics, if you like, in Catalonia, for the revival of Catalan uh, as a living language and not just uh, as a literary language. And the effect of this was that gradually the Catalan upper classes uh, also began to adopt Catalan uh, as at least uh, a, a language on equal footing uh, with Castilian and it became increasingly prominent uh, in the course of the late 19th, early 20th centuries. And the effect of that I think makes a very interesting comparison with what happened in Scotland because in Scotland uh, Gaelic uh, the language of the Highlands was gradually obliterated to all intents and purposes not just by the English but by the Scots themselves uh, following the Reformation uh, they thought of the Highlanders uh, as a barbaric people who ought to be speaking Scots which was a branch of English rather than Gaelic. So there was a concerted movement already from 1600 onwards uh, to uh, play down and, if possible, eradicate uh, Gaelic. So you get, whereas you get uh, strong nationalism developing in both these countries, both these nations, in the 19th and 20th centuries, although much stronger uh, for a long time in Catalonia uh, than in Scotland, uh, in spite of that, Language never becomes the real point of reference, the real marker uh, for Scottish nationalism, uh, whereas it does so uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, Catalan nationalism, which is the great uh, distinguishing element of uh, the language. Which I suppose, yes? which I suppose uh, raises the issue of, and we can go a little bit further into this later on, is um, in comparison to, say, Catalan nationalism, Scottish nationalism, something which would, for lack of a better expression, be labeled as postmodern nationalism, meaning that insofar as not based on a sort of cultural element of distinctiveness, which most uh, 19th century nationalist movements, as well as Catalan, um, were very much uh, emphasized the importance of. In the case of Scottish nationalism, that's, as you mentioned, absent, uh, conspicuously absent, and which Again, I suppose when I say postmodern nationalism, I suppose meaning that it's the only nationalist movement, at least European nationalist movement, which will get the qualified approval of, say, outlets like the London Review of Books or the London Intelligentsia. Huh. Well, um, I don't think that you can say that it was totally absent in 19th century Scotland. I think there's a tension, in fact, between... Uh, the sense of integration into a, a, a wider British unity, entity, uh, in which the Scots uh, expect to play uh, a totally full share on an equal basis with the English, 
a tension between that desire for effective integration that helps the Scots with uh, a, an image uh, of Scotland as culturally distinctive. I mean, the, the Highlands, which were treated as barbaric uh, by Edinburgh and the Scottish establishment in the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, begin to be romanticized in the 19th century. So you get the image of uh, uh, Scotland based on uh, Highland societies, clan societies, the Tartan and so on. And there's a continuing tension, in my view, uh, between those two views of Scotland, uh, are we are we the same uh, as the English, or an improved version of the English, if you like, or um, are we in some ways different? And if we are different, then it's right and only proper that we should keep our difference differences, uh, linguistic uh, differences in education, uh, differences in the law, uh, in particular religious differences with the Presbyterian Church establishment in Scotland. So there's a strong sense of what makes Scottish identity. The Scots cling on to that, uh, and every time there's some sort of bust-up uh, with England, with, with London, as there will be occasionally in the 19th century and in the 20th century even more, uh, at, at that point the Scots go back to that sense of cultural distinctiveness, and this persists uh, right up to today. Now, of course, uh, as you mentioned, that um, uh, the cultural distinctiveness um, is sort of Janus-faced. I immediately think when you mentioned it, of course, of George IV's tour of Scotland in 1821, I believe, where he was the first British monarch to wear a kilt, something which I'm sure right. his great-uncle, the Duke of Cumberland, would have regarded as being extremely odd. Absolutely, yeah. And Queen Victoria, of course, uh, takes the Highlands to her heart. Uh, she, she and Albert create their Scottish uh, baronial palace uh, of Balmoral. Uh, the British royal family, the English British royal family, uh, takes over, has its own tartan. Uh, the royal family spend part of every summer there and uh, very much identify themselves with the Scottish as well. So they go to, uh, they go to Scottish festivals uh, and so on. So that uh, the monarchy in particular has helped uh, to hold the two societies together and to some extent uh, to integrate them. Now, why was Philip II so cautious in his response to the disturbances in the crown of Aragon in 1590-1591? Well, he was a man who, in many respects, was extremely traditional. He'd taken an oath uh, uh, as a prince uh, to preserve uh, the laws and liberties of the crown of Aragon, and uh, he therefore uh, had a sense of his duty uh, as a sacred monarch who had made a, a sacred oath uh, to stand by uh, those uh, duties and obligations uh, and responsibilities. At the same time, uh, he was always very concerned uh, not to encourage uh, unrest of any sort. He knew it could be counterproductive, particularly after he'd tried to crush the revolt in the Netherlands in the 1960s, another part of Spain's uh, composite monarchy. And so he moved with great caution, although he uh, sent uh, an army into uh, Aragon, he was very careful 
uh, not to abolish uh, the major laws and liberties. He did some tinkering in important po- at important points uh, with the Aragonese constitutional system, but he felt it wiser uh, to leave things to, uh, as they were. So it's a combination, I think, of, of a sense of his duties as a monarch of a large number of uh, kingdoms and provinces. I mean, Spain, after all, was the greatest empire, the European empire of the time. Uh, it was a transatlantic empire. And he was very concerned uh, to preserve that sense of uh, the distinctiveness of his kingdoms, knowing that it was impossible with such enormous distances uh, to impose uniformity on all of them. And the attempts to impose uniformity uh, come later. They come after Philip II, uh, particularly in the, with the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War in the 1620s, uh, the growing pressure on Spanish uh, resources, military and fiscal resources, uh, to uh, uh, to mobilise the resources uh, of the other parts of the Iberian Peninsula, and I mustn't forget that Portugal was part of this great Iberian monarchy uh, between 1580 and 1640. So that the favourite of Philip IV, the Count Duke of Olivares, his first minister, uh, began to put pressure on the Crown of Aragon, the kingdoms of the Crown of Aragon, on Portugal, on Naples, which is another part of the Spanish uh, Empire and monarchy, uh, pressure uh, to raise men and money uh, for the war effort. And the pressure became so great uh, in Catalonia in the uh, spring, early spring of 1640, there was a great peasant uprising, and this led to uh, the great revolt of Catalonia which I studied in my book, The Revolt of the Catalans, my original doctoral thesis, uh, that led to uh, what turned out to be a breakaway movement uh, by uh, the political leaders of Catalonia against uh, the government of Madrid. They didn't at first think of getting rid of Philip IV, but since Olivares remained in power, uh, they began to realize that there was no future for them. They called on the French for help. They proclaimed themselves a republic for one week, but the, the French were not satisfied with that, wanted a degree of protection formalized. And so from 1641, they became, in a sense, uh, a satellite and protectorate of France. And the revolt in the end failed, and it lasted for 12, 12 years. And then they went back uh, to obedience to Philip IV, but preserving their institutions until, as we've said, uh, the next great uh, cataclysm, which was the uh, 1714 uh, surrender of Barcelona and the imposition of authoritarian rule from Madrid. Was there any impulse in the crown of Aragon to insist on having viceroys who were native to the territory? I seem to remember in the book that uh, one of the viceroys in the early 17th century was at least judging from his last name, Portuguese. Um, I don't think there was a Portuguese one in, uh, uh, in the Crown of Aragon, but yes, there was a very strong assistant. In fact, there's a legal obligation uh, to appoint uh, a, a native uh, of, the, of the Crown of Aragon in those, in those vice royalties, uh, Aragon, Valencia, and Catalonia. And that was one of the problems, a source of great tension in the early 1620s, uh, when uh, it looked as though the king was going to appoint a, non, a non-Catalan. Uh, Portugal uh, also was c- constantly insisting on uh, a native Portuguese uh, 
running the country or a member of the royal family. And so there was a sort of uneasy system of uh, either joint Portuguese viceroys, two or three Portuguese acting as viceroys, or some member of the royal family uh, becoming the uh, the viceroy or vicereign uh, of the of the kingdom of Portugal. But the Portuguese also uh, suffering from this uh, increasing pressures from Madrid, again fearing for their sense of identity. Once they'd seen the Catalans revolting and looking like getting away from it, uh, getting away with it in the autumn and winter of 1640, uh, then uh, organized their own coup d'etat, and they had a king-in-waiting in the Duke of Braganza, who became King John IV of Portugal, uh, following a, a, a palace coup, effectively, uh, in, at the beginning of December of 1640. And Portugal, unlike Catalonia, uh, retained uh, its independence. There was a long war with, with Spain in which uh, the Spaniards were ultimately defeated and Portugal uh, preserved uh, its identity, its overseas territories, and has remained, of course, as we all know, uh, an independent kingdom. Now, was there ever, in the case of Scotland, an English uh, viceroy? I seem to remember that after 1603, there was a governing council in Edinburgh which governed the country, and that more or less remained the case up to the Cromwellian interregnum. I think after the Restoration 1660, uh, the eventual Duke of Lauderdale was in essence the uh, de facto governing viceroy, and he, of course, was a native Scot. What he happened, was a great fixer, yes. <laughs> yeah. What happened, similar, actually, in that case to uh, Dundas in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, after 1707, what was the governing structure of Scotland? Well, it was rather odd, really, in the sense that Scots were more or less left to govern themselves, uh, but everything was channeled uh, through London. Uh, Robert Walpole uh, arranged a sort of very uh, elaborate patronage system uh, jobs were dished out, uh, jobs in India, the Americas and so on, were dished out uh, to members of the, uh, of the Scottish uh, political and social establishment. Uh, so that things were run that way, uh, with instructions from, uh, from uh, London uh, to uh, the, uh, those leaders uh, of uh, Scottish, uh, 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 Scottish polity uh, who remained in Edinburgh. And that was a continuing system. In a sense, uh, the Scots were put on a very light uh, reign uh, throughout all this period. And in fact, they often complained of neglect. uh, As much they complained, at least as much of neglect as intervention. And of course, Scottish MPs in the uh, House of Commons. And, and Scottish peers in the House of Lords would all lobby when a big issue concerning the Scots came up. And since they were cannon fodder, these MPs, in votes uh, for Robert Walpole and so on, he had to listen when they all ganged together, ganged up uh, against uh, some particularly obnoxious proposal uh, for taxation. So the, the Scots managed it very skillfully, and the English managed it very skillfully. It's very different from the kind, the degree of interventionism you find from Madrid in Catalan life in the 18th and 19th centuries. Do you agree with those who query the Act of Union of 1707? 
as not being legitimate in terms of expressing the true will of the Scottish people? It's very hard to know what that will was. By and large, many of them, I think most of them, probably saw it as a sellout by the rich and the powerful. And it was not at all welcome. I mean, they talked about not ringing wedding bells, but bells of mourning for the events of 1707. And things were made worse, of course, by the repression that followed, to some extent, the 1715, the first Jacobite rebellion. And then, much more importantly, the great Jacobite rebellion with the young pretender in 1745, when there was really savage repression by the Duke of Cumberland. And this created... A, a, a sense of oppression, English oppression, which in some ways has lasted up to today. And there was true victimization at that time. If you look at both Catalonia and Scotland, both see themselves as victimized societies. And to some extent it's true, certainly for 18th century Scotland with repression, and for 18th century Catalonia uh, with military government, what was effectively military government uh, for much of the 18th century. Uh, the situation really changes in the 19th when, uh, as I've said, for various reasons, Scotland begins to feel itself a part of a greater of a greater British identity, whereas the Catalans are subjected to governments that are both interventionist and in, uh, inefficient. I mean, it's impossible, for instance, I think I may say in the book, it's impossible to imagine London sending uh, troops to uh, attack and bombard Edinburgh, which is what happened uh, in 1842 and 1843. There was a savage bombardment of Barcelona uh, by the Spanish authorities. And that sort of uh, tense uh, relationship, what was effectively uh, repression on a large scale, uh, simply didn't occur uh, in the Scottish and British instance. You seem to indicate that during what we can label the short 18th century that both unions, uh, if you like, <clears throat> excuse me, the union in Catalonia after 1714, the union in Scotland after 1707, were, economically speaking at least, a good thing. Is that correct? I believe that they, it was. I think that the Scots were in a sort of cul-de-sac, really, uh, without access to Britain's overseas uh, trade and empire. Uh, they were trading, of course, uh, they long, had long-standing trading links with Northern Europe in particular, with, with the Dutch especially. But it wasn't enough to refloat the Scottish economy, insofar as refloating was, uh, was the right word for that, because it was not a powerful economy even before the crisis of the 1690s. So that, um, in a sense, uh, they were bailed out uh, by the 1707 Union and went on to do great things, as I've said. The Catalans also, they have, they have far fewer opportunities uh, to enter into uh, posts and commercial activities in Spanish America. The Spanish Indies, of course, have been colonized, and they were, a, they were a, a kingdom of the crown of Castile, not of Spain, from the beginning. And this meant that Castilians were appointed to the jobs and that trade, the transatlantic trade, the great trade which uh, sent the colonists to uh, the Caribbean and to the American mainland 
from Columbus onwards, uh, that trade was based in Seville uh, as part of um, uh, Castile and Andalusia, and for that reason, uh, everything was funneled uh, through the crown of Castile and its institutions, the Council of the Indies and so on. And it was very difficult for the Catalans, who had uh, good merchants and who had established a, uh, quite a colony in uh, Seville and then Cadiz, and did their best to infiltrate the American trade. But it was a very small contribution to the Catalan economy in the 18th century. And it was the, the Indies were too much exclusive. Uh, attempts were made to open up the trade in the 1760s and 70s. But then, of course, you get the great catastrophe for Spain, which is the coming of the independence of Spanish America uh, between 1888 uh, and, and 1820, when one after another of the territories of Spanish America break away from the Spanish crown. So that by the 1820s and 30s, the Spain's overseas empire consisted of only three uh, territories, uh, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. Well, Catalan merchants and industrialists moved in particular into, Cat into Cuba in a big way, made a lot of money out of Cuba in the 19th century, uh, sugar and slaves in particular. But um, it was very late in the day, so they were never part of the great imperial project, the Spanish imperial project, as the Scots were an integral part uh, of the British imperial project. And that's a fundamental difference uh, between the historical trajectories of the two societies. Uh, you note on page 157 that modern Catalan historiography is quite selective in its interpretation of Catalan history, choosing to airbrush, anyth airbrush out anything which is not, quote, progressive and modern, unquote, from Catalan history. <laughs> Could the same thing be said of Scottish nationalism? I'm thinking people like Tom Nairn, as well as an underlying discourse related to Scottish nationalism, which posits that Scots are innately egalitarian, as well as opposed to sort of uh, inegalitarian, focused on wealth of uh, English uh, people. Yes, there is certainly something of that in Spanish history, in Scottish historiography. Um, if you take, for instance, uh, the riots in Paisley in 1820, the time of the famous Peterloo massacre uh, in Manchester in England, uh, not much attention was paid to that in Scotland, but it was suddenly revived. And the memory of those three people who were executed in the Paisley riots uh, were, was uh, uh, elevated uh, around about the year 2000 as part of the Scottish nationalist movement. And I should say in general that Scottish historical writing, the level of it, has been on the whole very high over the last, uh, over the last 30, 40 years. I mean, it's a, it's a very good historiography on the whole. Uh, there is some sense of victimization, obviously much insistence on the Highland clearances, for instance, and on uh, the Battle of Culloden and so on. But by and large, uh, the Scots have been a very, uh, uh, Scottish historians have been a very aware, uh, much aware of the wider context of British history, although to some extent they have been, in my view, too parochial and insular in their treatment of their own society. They, they should be comparing and looking outwards uh, more than they do. 
But uh, compared with uh, Catalan historical writing of the 20th century, there's no doubt that Scottish history is at a much higher level. There were two, there was a great uh, Catalan historian, Jaume Vicens Vives, who uh, I was fortunate enough to work with when I, as a graduate student in Barcelona in the 1950s, who was trying to get the Catalans to demythologize their own history which was presented as a history of victimization over the centuries by uh, an oppressive, arrogant, uh, and repressive Castile. And the effect of that, uh, Vicens was trying to make the Catalans look at different aspects to see how much was slanted towards uh, a romantic vision of the Catalan past, which simply didn't coincide with the realities, just as I found that the traditional romantic presentation of the revolt of the Catalans in 1640 just didn't square with the documents I was finding in the archives. It turned out to be a very divided society in 1640. Uh, those who were presented as Catalan heroes very often had feet of clay, as was only to be expected. And uh, this Romantic historiography was challenged by Vicenz and his pupils. And I thought in the 19, he died prematurely at the age of 50 in 1960. And I thought at the time of his death that the battle was won. But a new generation has risen up, which has dismissed his work, even denounces him now as a fascist, and has gone back to the romantic historiography. Uh, so that I find it rather depressing as somebody who lived through that revolution pioneered by Vicens and his pupils to find that revolution overturned uh, by a new generation which again I think has been, become selective uh, in, its, uh, in its treatment of the Catalan past. Uh, for example, you get very little in the recent books on uh, Catalan national identity, it's always presented as uh, something that uh, uh, nationalism is something felt by all the people of Catalonia to, equal, uh, to an equal degree and equal measure, that that nationalism uh, has been uh, popular and uh, outward looking and so on. But they've totally ignored, for instance, the strength of a highly regressive uh, 19th century movement, the Carlist movement in the Carlist Wars, uh, which were for, for king and church. And there's a rural Catalonia, uh, which is not included in the narrative uh, of recent uh, Catalan historians. So it's a very biased, uh, lopsided narrative. And until that less attractive part of the Catalan past is reintegrated into Catalan history. We're going to go on getting this tedious story of victimization, of everything being the fault of the Castilians, a refusal to look at the divisions within Catalan society, whether in 1640, 1714, uh, 19th century with the Carlist Wars, or today uh, where the uh, independentistas uh, claiming to be speaking for all uh, Catalonia when they're speaking for less than 50% of the Catalans. And this is a tragedy 
and it's leading led to an impasse, a political impasse at this moment. Very difficult to see the way out. A whole generation has been, I think, uh, educated uh, in a biased way uh, with textbooks which uh, treat Spain as something as, as permanently hostile to Catalonia, determined to do Catalonia down uh, all the time. And this is absolute nonsense. And uh, but as long as uh, a substantial section of Catalans and by and large uh, the middle and professional uh, classes uh, who are speaking in this way, until that uh, almost contagion of false history uh, is somehow extirpated, I'm afraid we're going to have a, a very difficult continuing uh, political uh, standoff uh, between Barcelona and Madrid. The, I was thinking the famous, there was a famous BBC biography about Cullenden, I believe in 1965, was that at all influential in the Ewing by-election victory by the Scottish National Party two years later? I don't know, but I, sh I shouldn't be surprised. It was one of the things that would have intensified uh, the, uh, the Scottish National Party at that moment and Winifred Ewing's uh, famous victory. But that was due much more to the failures, both of uh, the Conservatives and to some extent of Labour, uh, than it was, I think, uh, to uh, a particular film. But, of course, films like Braveheart uh, create an image which enters the popular psychology and mentality. So they do play their part and, and can't be ignored. Why didn't um, Scottish devolution in 1997, 1998, uh, in the words of uh, George Robinson, uh, quote, kill stone dead, unquote, Scottish nationalism? Well, because uh, that was the whole point from, from uh, Blair's and Robertson's perspective. That's right. That was, yeah, that was the object. And I think politicians consistently underrate the role of emotion uh, in the past and indeed in the present. I don't think uh, they expect rational responses to, uh, to political situations and responses all too often suddenly become totally irrational. I think the, the Scottish National Party uh, played its cards very skillfully under the leadership of Alex Salmond which was charismatic leadership in those early years. Uh, I think that Scottish society had been very shaken by the uh, deindustrialization uh, launched, uh, the, the, the loss of the old industries uh, under the government of Mrs. Thatcher, who became a hate figure, very understandably, uh, in Scotland. Uh, at the same time, you get the discovery of these great deposits of North Sea oil, which begin to give Scots the impression, the idea, that they could go it alone if they broke away from England. And that bolsters the uh, Scottish national and nationalist movement. Uh, when Salmon comes to power, not as part of a co coalition, uh, but uh, as a governing party, uh, he's in a position to advance his agenda, uh, he can do that uh, at a time when many things are happening in Scottish society. There's 
uh, I think, a, a loss of deference among the electorate in general. There's exasperation with the Labour Party, which had become fossilised in Scotland and loses its hold uh, over uh, Scottish society, so that there's a, a political vacuum. The Tories have been wiped out effectively. Uh, Labour is, is collapsing too. That leaves a vacuum. And at the same time, I think that the Scottish Church has lost, the Presbyterian Church had gradually lost its hold over Scottish society. So once again, there's a wide vacuum which uh, is filled uh, by uh, nationalism uh, under the leadership of, of Alex Salmond. And he can drive forward uh, and uh, gets the uh, permission of uh, David Cameron as Prime Minister and the British political establishment for a, a referendum uh, into 2014, which he, I think, had felt he had a good, very good chance of winning or he wouldn't have asked for it. And, of course, that referendum fails, I felt, 55% to 45% against. But the question of a second referendum uh, is, uh, again, coming to the fore as a result in particular of Brexit, and the very skillful leadership, I think, of Nicola Sturgeon, although there's certain exasperation, I think, in Scotland at the same time, and with the whole nationalist movement, nationalist government has not made, uh, done all the things that was, were hoped to it. So, again, we're at a very uncertain moment uh, in Scotland, uh, as in Catalonia, uh, in Britain, uh, as in Spain. And historians are not prophets, uh, so I can't predict what's going to happen, but one always has to be expecting the unexpected. Who supports socioeconomically which groups, uh, Scottish and Catalan nationalism? I would say that in Catalonia, it's been uh, the middle and professional classes particularly. Uh, there have been an enormous immigration into Catalonia from other parts of Spain uh, and indeed from overseas. And these people just want to keep going and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and make enough to survive on. So I think it's become, it's been very much, I think, an intellectual and emotional movement by those uh, upper ranks of, of Catalan society. Only the other day I was watching uh, uh, I've been sent a, um, a, a, a clip online of a demonstration uh, by uh, Catalan secessionists who uh, were out in force in the streets of Barcelona uh, protesting against what they call the political prisoners and uh, they were singing the, the sort of theme song from Les Miserables and if you look at them they were I would say mostly middle-aged middle-class uh, Catalans, highly respectable citizens, who've been absolutely swept off their feet uh, by uh, the nationalist movement for reasons which it, it is difficult to understand. And in Scotland, uh, I think, again, it's been particularly a, a middle-class movement, but it's, it's spread wider than that. Uh, and I think parts of Scotland, Glasgow, for instance, uh, are, are very strongly secessionists, whereas other parts uh, are not. Um, I don't think, for instance, the Aberdeen area with the North Sea oil uh, can be classed in that category. So it's partly geographical as well. Uh, but it's, it's very difficult until analyses uh, are done uh, uh, of both uh, of the different social groups involved 
I don't think that we're going to have a clear answer to your question. And I don't think that answer is going to be able to account for the uh, irrational, as I've been saying. Uh, the Catalans, you, you can speak to them till you're absolutely dead, uh, dead tired speaking about the success of the Catalan economy, which has been tremendous from 1978 to 2008. Catalans have never had it so good. But um, that is simply insufficient. It doesn't, in the eyes of these people, it doesn't really matter, even if uh, industries and firms, companies, are moving out in Barcelona in quite large numbers, and money has been taken out of Catalan banks and so on. But they ignore this uh, uh, as essentially a sideshow that things will come right as soon as they get independence, and independence is the answer. And of course, what does independence mean in the globalized world in which we live? Uh, no country, no society is independent. Uh, so the breakaway movements can only be semi-breakaway at the best, and uh, they can lead uh, to disaster on many fronts uh, if they're not well handled. Uh, you write in the book that uh, Catalan, the Catalan independence movement was, quote, nostalgic for a world that never was, unquote. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, this is a major differential between Catalan nationalism and Scottish nationalism. I'm thinking in particular of a um, statement by the former Catalan premier, Moss, in 2012, in, in which he said, quote, the cultural DNA of Catalans is intertwined with our long belonging to the Franco-Germanic world. Catalonia, after all, long belonged to the Marca Hispanica, and its capital was Achen, the heart of the Carolingian Empire. Something must endure in our DNA because we Catalans have an umbilical cord that makes us more Germanic than Roman, unquote. Difficult to imagine anyone in any responsible Scottish nationalist um, party or official would come up with any statement anywhere close to something of that nature. Yeah, I think it's incredible. And it's, it's characteristic of the fantasy world in which so many of these uh, pretty mediocre uh, Catalan politicians uh, have been living, uh, that they can twist things in this way. It's very characteristic, and I agree with you. I don't think you would find that. You, you might find it in, in Scottish pubs, uh, that sort of statement, but you're not going to find uh, that from the mouths of responsible politicians. Uh, if you wanted, Sir John, for people to take one thing away from this book, what would it be? I'd like them to think that nothing is black and white in the past, that you simply have to understand how many nuances there are. There are so many shades of grey, effectively, that things have been, are seen either as black or as white, where there's always... Uh, very often an in-between uh, point in all this, uh, an awareness of the complexity of the past, but an awareness also uh, of the importance of the past, that we're all looking back to a past, we reinvent the past, each generation reinvents those aspects of the past which attract it. And our duty as historians is to show uh, that uh, the past is dependent on so many elements uh, like personality, contingency, the irrational, the emotional, as we've mentioned. And uh, you get a great leader suddenly, 
who manages as an opportunist very often to exploit uh, an, an unfavorable economic situation and develop a populist approach. But uh, as I've tried to show by doing a history, a sustained history over 500 years, uh, things move in cycles and you, you can never quite know at one point whether the, thing, the situation, whether uh, developments are going to go up or down. And that's the sheer fascination of history. I'm a, I've enormously enjoyed my life as a historian, simply discovering these complexities, uh, trying to identify what seems to me important uh, by putting myself as far as possible into the shoes of those people I'm writing about. It's a very difficult imaginative enterprise, but it's enormously worthwhile because it takes you out of that sense of the present day with no, with no past, which is bedeviling all Western societies at this moment and making them realize the, the need to develop a long perspective over the centuries where everything is not quite as clear cut as it's sometimes presented in the textbooks. Well, on that uh, lovely as well as very cogent and um, intelligent statement, which I hope all historians can follow through to the best extent of their abilities, obviously not uh, the abilities of Sir John Eliot, but everyone has their own level. Uh, I would like to thank you very much indeed, Sir John, for being so kind uh, to speak to us today. But it's been a great pleasure, and I've very much enjoyed our conversation. This is Charles Cutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.